Welcome to Cases and Controversies, the Supreme Court podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm producer David Schultz. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. So Greg Storr will be joining us in a little bit. He's not here right now because he's extremely busy because we have a lot to talk about. Uh, So much going on. In a little bit, we'll hear from Joan Biskupic, a senior Supreme Court analyst at CNN. Uh, But first, Kimberly, let's talk about all the things that have happened since our last episode, uh, starting in chronological order. Justice Thomas, uh, we found out some new news about him. Uh, Can you bring me up to speed on what's been happening and and, uh, what people are talking about? Sure, David. So the latest ethics kerfuffle um, involves, again, Justice Thomas, who has been the target of many of these um, concerns. This one, though, doesn't have to deal with his wife for January 6th, but instead uh, with a friendship, a a different kind of close relationship. And the allegation um, that was set forth in this report by ProPublica says that For the last 20 years, Justice Thomas has been friends with Mr. Crow, and in that friendship, the Crows have extended hospitality to the Thomases. All of this is interesting in and of itself, but the other thing that's particularly notable is that none of this was on Justice Thomas's disclosures. And I should say for listeners uh, listening in the background, that uh, is Kimberly Robinson's dog, who apparently has some thoughts on uh, Justice Thomas's uh, ethical considerations. Our apologies there. Um, what's your dog's name, Kimberly, just out of curiosity? Well, Roxy um, does have a lot of thoughts. She particularly is interested in Justice Thomas's statement um, that he made in response to these allegations. Um, he said that, you know, he's been dear friends with the Crows since about five years after he got on the court. That, you know, like like people do, they go on vacations together. I mean, who among us has not ridden on their friend's private jet to Indonesia to hang out on the private yacht? Come on. Uh-huh. Um, but more substantively, he said that he did consult with his colleagues and others about um, what his ethical disclosures or ethical duties were and that they, you know, told him he didn't need to disclose this. And he was sort of following that advice. Okay, David, I have to let her in. She's going bananas. Uh, do what you got to do. Roxy. Okay, I have given her peanut butter in the hopes that that will preoccupy her for a little bit. But let's go. Okay, yeah, we are. the clock is ticking. So, uh, Kimberly, yeah, you we kind of alluded to this earlier, but let's talk about the reaction to this. This was not something that, that just sort of faded away quickly. It's not. And so one of... You know, one of the the striking things to me about the reaction that we saw was the reaction from um, members of Congress. And so we saw um, Senate Democrats say that they're going to hold a hearing on this, um, potentially calling some witnesses. Don't know if that's going to try to include Justice Thomas. That potentially is another big, um, big battle coming to maybe even the Supreme Court. Um, But also we saw some Democrats really urged the chief justice himself and the court itself to kind of look into this issue and said, if you don't do it, you know, we're going to. So it's, you know, Congress has always been really hesitant to get sort of in the middle of the nitty gritty of the Supreme Court and their dealings. But this might be one area where they're just really sort of unsettled um, by the reaction from the court and maybe looking to do a little bit more. Well, let's talk about what the court is doing on the bench, uh, not off the bench here, uh, and 
Despite what you're about to hear uh, in our interview with Joan Biskupic uh, and her, you know, talking about the court's ambitions and wanting to tackle big issues, the court decided to sidestep a pretty big issue uh, last week and not hear a case involving uh, transgender athletes and high school sports. Um, tell me about what they uh, did not do. <laughs> tell them. All right, I'll try to tell you what they did not do. So this case, we talked about it a little bit on the podcast a while ago, but this involves a West Virginia law that restricted access to school sports to students to their um, biological sex rather than the sex that they identify as. And so um, this was challenged in um, a federal district court. The district court said West Virginia could go ahead and you know, and, act, and apply the law, and then an intermediate appellate court put on the brakes. And importantly here, they did so without really saying much about why they were doing that. And so that's how the case came up to the Supreme Court. As you mentioned last week, the justices said, you know, we're, we're not going to get involved, but it was just in a one-line order that said, you know, we, we deny the, the relief that the state is asking for here. Um, and didn't say anything else often like they do in these shadow docket cases. But there was a dissent um, from Justice Alito that was joined by Justice Thomas. And the crux of that dissent seems to be um, the lack of an explanation from the intermediate appellate court and then now the Supreme Court. You know, Alito was saying that this is a state law. It deserves to be enacted. And it's a pretty high bar for federal courts to stop state laws. And it certainly doesn't meet that bar when appellate courts don't say their reasoning for doing that. And so that was the crux of the argument. This this issue is definitely going to come back to the court. Um, so it's not like this is the end-all be-all of, you know, the court's jurisprudence on school sports and, you know, transgender rights in general. So, but it's just sort of where the case stands now or where the matter stands now. That's a really good point. I guess they're, they're not sidestepping the issue. They're just saying not now, but they're, it's, it sounds like it's, uh, you know, a matter of when, not if, that they'll take this issue up. That seems right to me, David. Mm. Uh, and finally, let's talk about the most recent developments, uh, which are the reason why Greg uh, is not with us at the moment, because there are developments on uh, abortion rights happening as we record this on the afternoon of Thursday, uh, April 13th. Very, very briefly and quickly, uh, let's talk about what's happening with Mifepristone um, and what the Supreme Court has to do with all this. Right. So um, last week, uh, Friday afternoon, we got an order from a Texas judge um, that put on hold this drug uh, that's used for early term abortions and the FDA's approval of it in 2000, as well as some changes that the FDA has made since to ease access to the drug. So think about things like reducing and actually eliminating the need to go to a doctor to get this prescription and the ability to get the prescription by mail. Uh, the judge there said that the FDA didn't have the authority to do that. And so uh, while the case continues to work its way through the federal courts, put a stay um, on those regulations, meaning, I guess, that they, you know, that the drug would be pulled from the shelves, although sort of unclear. Shortly after that, um, not to be outdone by Texas, Washington, a federal judge in Washington, um, issued an order in a similar but different case. This one was brought by this by some uh, Democratic-led states, which were actually challenging some of the restrictions that still remain on on the drug. And just to clarify, these both both of these orders came down uh, late on Friday. 
uh, on a the Friday before a holiday weekend. Right. I mean, as is, you know, as these orders tend to do. Uh-huh. Um, so the judge there seemed to not agree with the states and issued an order that said that the FDA can't make any changes to um, to its abortion pill rules. And so you sort of set up this. The situation where there's kind of conflicting rulings, not really clear. And so now we're dealing with the fallout from that. So in the Washington case, the government has sort of asked the Washington court to clarify what does that mean and how does it sort of interact with this other um, ruling out of Texas. The Texas case is moving very, very quickly because the judge there um, gave the FDA a little bit of reprieve. It gave them a week to appeal. Great, a whole week, thank you. Um, Which means that uh, the ruling actually doesn't take effect until this Friday. Which, which just to clarify, that's tomorrow. Tomorrow, right. Tomorrow. Um, and so the <laughs> DOJ appealed to the Fifth Circuit and asked for expedited review. And late last night, are you seeing, are you sensing a theme here, David? Um, yeah. Although this one's not totally, this one's not the Fifth Circuit's fault because it was, you know, it, it only had a few days to decide. I think I think most courts and most judges generally are trying to uh, make journalists' lives uh, hellish and you know ruin our schedules. That's my general view. I think. That's part of the oath that they take. That's part of the judicial oath of <laughs> yeah. office. Um, I think. Don't quote me on that. Um, mm-hmm. But so the the Fifth Circuit did really put on a, a very expedited briefing. We saw you know giving the parties mere hours to respond um, to some of these arguments. So, you know, I guess that it's not just limited to journalists' lives, but also yeah, lawyers, lawyers, too. Lawyers too. Um, and then, so last night, the Fifth Circuit did hand down a ruling, and it sort of lowered the stakes a bit, um, but still put on the brakes on some parts of uh, the access to abortion pills. And so where we stand right now is that those portions of the ruling are set to go into effect tomorrow but but the DOJ has already said that it's going to appeal to the Supreme Court so you know if we look at what the Supreme Court has done in the past when it's up against these really hard deadlines typically they put into place what's called an administrative stay to keep the status quo that was happening before the litigation in place so I expect to see um, pretty rapidly the Supreme Court put an administrative stay that is a very temporary stay just sort of saying let's chill out why we can consider this issue and then we'll consider it more fully what that looks like I don't know whether or not they issue an order whether or not they actually set the case for argument which we've seen them do in some other shadow docket rulings We'll just have to see. But, you know, this is an issue that's coming just straight up to the Supreme Court. All right. Well, let's get into our uh, discussion with our guest. Uh, Greg just uh, spoke with her earlier this morning. Uh, Her name is Joe Biskubic, and she is the senior Supreme Court analyst for CNN. She just wrote a book called Nine Black Robes Inside the Supreme Court's Drive to the Right and Its Historic Consequences. And maybe she can give us uh, some insight into... Uh, why everything is happening all at once. Uh, Here's the interview. Joan, great to have you on. Thanks so much for doing this. Um, First of all, congratulations uh, on getting getting this book out the door and getting all the great reviews you've gotten so far. Thanks, Greg. It's so nice to be with you, a fellow author. Um, Well, I I just want to... Tell everybody first. I mean, what what you do so well in this book, Joan, is you manage to weave in both the really major and important substance of what the court is doing 
and talk about the personalities that make it happen because um, what what this court does, even though it is a, you know, we like to call it a 6-3 majority, conservative majority, it's so highly dependent on the inclinations of those nine distinct individuals. So it, it, it's a great read for, for all of that. Joe, my, my first question for you, I've been wanting to ask you this for a long time. I'll do it now that I've got you on the spot. How in the heck do you get all these people to talk to you? <laughs> You're asking me the question that I avoid most. Uh, I take nothing for I take nothing for granted, Greg. I take nothing for granted in terms of who will keep talking to me and and what will happen. You know, going back to the early 2000s, even even at times you know where I was with the Washington Post in the 90s, I would write something and some people would say, "Oh, they'll never talk to her again. They'll never talk to her again," and inevitably they do, uh, or at least enough. Still, but again, I don't take anything for granted. And I have to say, with the turn the court has taken and as polarized as it's gotten and as paranoid as it's gotten in the wake of the Dobbs leak, uh, I'm especially uh, careful about what I say. But I have had uh, good fortune to get uh, various justices on both sides of the ideological divide to talk to me at times. Okay, I, pr- I promise that's my last question about your sources. Um, <laughs> let, let's dive in this to, to some of the stuff in the book. And one thing that that jumped out at me um, was was your portrayal of of what Chief Justice Roberts has been doing over the past several years. And you, of course, wrote an entire book on him, so you've thought an awful lot about him. I'm I'm wondering where do you think John Roberts stands at this moment? in this court, how much sway does he have with his colleagues there? Well, first of all, I do consider John Roberts to remain a very persuasive individual. I think he's, you know, he's got a, a lot of skills in that department. He was a longtime oral advocate before the court. He's very smart. Uh, he can read the room to an extent, but he has a much weaker hand. And I think in part, it's because of what came before this period. There were those on the far right who uh, distrusted him in the wake of his uh, double switch vote in uh, the Obamacare case back in 2012. And as much as the chief has been strategic in a way that will sometimes work with his colleagues, it has irked some of them. You know, I think of I think of what Clarence Thomas said out loud in uh, May of 2022 that revealed, I think, some of his resistance to the way the chief operates when he talked about the distrust among the colleagues that he was feeling in the wake of the Dobbs leak. And then he flashed back to what the court was like under Chief Justice William Rehnquist, who died in 2005, succeeded, of course, by John Roberts. And he talked about how he you know, used to know where his colleagues were coming from. And he made a point of singling out Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg who he, of course, is the ideological opposite from. And he said, you always knew where she stood. Now, John Roberts, they don't always know where he stands. And, you know, I mentioned the Obamacare vote, but then also, you know, when he uh, changed directions in the Wilbur Ross census questionnaire dispute, when the Department of Commerce, which Wilbur Ross was leading at the time, wanted to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census, and the chief ends up changing his vote near the end and making all the difference and rejecting the Trump administration's arguments for that. Those are just two examples. But I know there are others where they don't really feel like they know exactly what he's up to. Uh, and so if they already had a little bit of 
tensions and suspicions for him before we got to October 2020, when Justice Amy Coney Barrett comes on, you know, it's it sort of sets a bit of the atmosphere for then when his hand is so much weaker as he tries to change the majority to his rights view in cases, notably in the Dobbs abortion case. You know, he wanted to hold off on full reversal of Roe. Uh, and just did not make headway there. And then, of course, once the leak was out, it made it almost impossible for him to make headway with someone like Brett Kavanaugh. You wrote about, um, I, I think the, the words you used were an implicit understanding uh, that, that John Roberts had with Anthony Kennedy before Kennedy retired, involving two different cases, both touching on gay rights and how the court was going to handle those those two cases. And I'm wondering, does is Roberts still in a position to make, uh, I don't know if you want to call it a deal, maybe that's too strong, but is he able, you know, still in a position where he can kind of work with colleagues that maybe are, are, are near him in the, in the middle of the court? I think that's a great question. And I do think he can still. Um, and I, I'll just get to the uh, first part of your question when you talked about my reference to this understanding that uh, a pact of sorts between the chief justice and Justice Anthony Kennedy, who was so crucial on so many gay rights decisions. I, I make a point when I describe that scene to say how uh, it's often very hard to get to the bottom of deals struck between just two individual justices. You know, a lot of times the clerk network can pass on information about what's going on. But I found that in some situations, only the two justices involved truly know what happened. And sometimes various chambers have dueling accounts of what happened, or individual justices remain baffled about why a colleague voted the way he or she did in the end. But I do think that he still is able to work with, he's able to work with all the justices to some extent. Obviously, the, uh, at the two extremes on the right and the left, uh, they're more reluctant, but I think that he certainly still has the ear of Brett Kavanaugh and uh, Amy Coney Barrett to an extent. It's just that they have they have real security in numbers. I am really struck by the difference between a 6-3 court from what it was a 5-4 court and how just the addition of one more conservative didn't add just a single more vote on the right, but it sort of emboldened the right. And I... Uh, I make a point in the book of talking about something that uh, Antonin Scalia had said to me ages ago when he was talking about the Federalist Society, the Federalist Society that has had such an influence on the Supreme Court, about the comfort of being around similar voices, that you weren't tempted to break away, that there were strength in the numbers, there was strength in people who had a, uh, were looking at the law the way they you were looking, and this was in the early 80s when the Federalist Society was just getting going. But I, I've thought of that plenty of times when I've considered the fact that the chief probably will have a harder time picking off someone like Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, who haven't had the records uh, that you know uh, Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch and Sam Alito have had in terms of some of their unyielding conservatism, only because of the security that that block now has, uh, that they they sort of reinforce each other's positions. And I think that phenomena, which is is hard to really get at, is, is very real, actually. Let me ask you about 
Brett Kavanaugh, because I, I think I would make the case that that he may be the the person on the court who is the most misunderstood among the public, if only because the public has such a clear impression of him based on on what happened at his confirmation hearing. And you have a, a fascinating detail in, in in the book about a note he wrote to a, a judge after a case, and I'll, I'll let you tell about that. But what is your sense of Brett Kavanaugh's, um, you know, sense of himself as a justice and his his role in the court, and how those factors you were just talking about with the, you know, the, the ability of the conservative bloc to kind of reinforce one another's views, uh, how, how he fits into that? Well, first of all, he has a lot of power on this court because of where he sits, you know, near the ideological center. There really is not a pure center anymore uh, because it's top heavy toward uh, the right. But Brett Kavanaugh has a lot of power on this court. And I think that he appreciates that power. Uh, I do understand what you're saying about how he's portrayed in a certain way from those confirmation hearings and also from what he tries to do in opinions. And I, I do point out the public side that's always trying to appease the lose the losers in cases that he he always he is always trying to say well you know even though I've just voted against you um, I do admire you for other reasons it, you know as he did for example in the 2020 Bostock ruling when he dissented so you know he he's done that publicly but what I found is that behind the scenes he's doing that even more so I, I found in the 2020. Uh, abortion case from Louisiana, different ways that he wanted an off-ramp, you know, sending mixed signals about where he really stands on something. The episode that you point to came in the wake of the justices ruling that I just referred to, uh, rejecting the Trump administration's plan to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census. And in that case, uh, Clarence Thomas wrote the main dissent and he was highly critical, I mean, frankly, unusually critical, even for, for Clarence Thomas to uh, personally uh, condemn the lower court judge who had handled this case, uh, uh, Jesse Furman. And it, as I said, it was an unusually strong dissent. It was signed by Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch. But then Brett Kavanaugh, I found out, separately decides to write a letter to Judge Furman, you know, trying to trying to discount what he signed on to in that and expressing respect for the judge. And I found out about it, frankly, in the context of somebody who thought that this was just yet another example of him, you know, trying to say, sending mixed signals, trying to appear more appeasing when his bottom line public view was quite negative toward this judge. I want to jump over to the subject of abortion, and I guess my my big question to you is is whether it was inevitable that we were going to end up with a ruling that that overturned Roe. And part of the reason I asked that is I I was very struck. It may have been like the most like wow that's interesting moment for me of of the book that when the the court had that Texas case. Uh, involving the the six week ban enforced by private lawsuits, and the, the court was dealing with whether that law could go into effect, and uh, then whether there was some way to get judicial review of it. And the court heard arguments in that case, and uh, a, a lot of us in the media, you know, listened to the arguments, and and you know, we heard a lot of questions from Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett that sounded like they were pretty skeptical of what Texas was doing. 
And then it turns out they they voted to to essentially you know clear the law to to go forward and and uh, you know, largely preclude any any challenge to it. You wrote in the book that after arguments, some of the justices thought that, and I think you were saying some of the liberal justices thought that Kavanaugh and Barrett might vote against Texas in the case, and it didn't didn't work out that way. So, so what do you think happened there, and and was this march towards restricting abortion rights, uh, you know, were they bound to, to to end up where they are? That's a great question, and I'll tell you what happened is that you know those of us who listened to the oral arguments and were in the room, and the few of us who were in the room. Uh, both thought that uh, Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett were suddenly viewing the Texas arguments with suspicion. And this could have been a real turning point in that case. It could have been the first order from the court against the Texas law. And lots of us reported it that way. And then I found out that some of the justices had heard it that way. But they realized they had not heard those two correctly, and that when votes were cast in private, uh, they they some of them actually felt a little bit misled about what they had heard in public. That uh, Kavanaugh and Barrett's comments during oral arguments uh, did not reveal their true sentiment against the abortion clinics. So so you had that moment, and it, if you remember, you know that moment comes, of course, in late 2021. And then they have the oral arguments in the in the Mississippi case. And what I always like to stress to people is they initially took that Mississippi case only to test the 15-week abortion ban. They didn't take it to fully confront Roe v. Wade. So, so when we're in late 2021 and we've seen some of the mixed signals on SB8, and we're also aware of what they took the Mississippi case to assess, you know, I think some of us thought, you know, maybe there's a chance they wouldn't fully roll roll back row. But I have to say, Greg, when I stepped back from everything, and I even looked at what I had written up to the moment that we found out what was truly in the Dobbs opinion uh, in spring of 2022, I see that we were marching that way. And there was it was probably not going to be anything other than the ruling we got. Uh, I think that Chief Justice John Roberts really tried to convince Brett Kavanaugh to move over and just do the, you know, reach, uh, approve the Mississippi law, but leave alone Roe. And I, I, I think that if there was a chance that the chief was going to prevail, it all ended on May 2nd when the draft opinion written by Samuel Alito became public. I know that he was working very hard to convince, to persuade. Justice Kavanaugh to move over. I had been doing some reporting that made me led me to believe that he wasn't making headway. But if I had written the story at that point, and I actually was thinking of writing the story at that point, Greg, that morning earlier on May 2nd, I would have said, but there are still so many weeks left in the term and never discount the persuasive power of John Roberts. So I would have left the door open for the possibility that Brett Kavanaugh could join some middle ground opinion that the chief was pushing. But then once the leak was out there, all the votes were locked in and the door was slammed on any further, any real further negotiation. Very, very interesting. So let me ask you to kind of look to the future a little bit. Um, Is, is it your sense that you did most of your reporting before the Dobbs decision? Maybe some things have changed since the Dobbs decision came out. 
but I'm, I'm wondering if it's your sense that this is a court that is now emboldened. Hey, that was great. We overturned Roe. What's, what's next on the list? And we're going to continue to see for years to come a lot of major uh, decisions, major changes. Or is there any reason to think that uh, this court, which of course has gotten, you know, got a lot, gotten a lot of criticism from a lot of fronts for a lot of reasons, might be interested in saying, okay, let's take a breath and let things settle down before we go aggressively charging off to to make other big decisions. I think that's a that's a good question, and I think there are two things come to mind. First of all. On one hand, I really believe what those dissenters said in Dobbs. No one should be confident that this majority is done with its work. And I have personally felt from some of the justices a real sense of urgency to get things accomplished. You know, remember, they're all aware that anything can happen at any point with the health changes among the nine. You know, they they were all caught off guard. Uh, by the death of Justice Scalia back in February of 2016, even though he was right on the cusp of turning 80, you know, that was that was such a shock. And then even though Justice Ginsburg had been so sick for so long, I still think her death in September of 2020 just startled everyone so much. And it became such a it became such a uh, a warning that things don't last forever one way or another on this court. So I think, you know, Justices Alito and Thomas, who are in their 70s, they would like to keep moving and keep moving at the pace that, that, that they are. Justice Kavanaugh and the chief certainly probably would like to slow things down. But I'll just use an example, one that you're very familiar with, which is the racial affirmative action area. I think that uh, I will be surprised if they hedge their bets on the Harvard and University of North Carolina cases to preserve uh, university's ability to look at race, to build a diverse class. I think that's one area. I think that they've, they're now in the position of tra- probably pulling back the main uh, election law uh, case involving the independent state legislature theory, just because of the what's happened in North Carolina on that decision. But here's, a, here's another area where I don't think they're going to hedge too much on voting rights. And that had been going on before. Chief Justice John Roberts, and he has an easy majority for this, really does not like racial remedies and has long wanted to narrow the reach of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. So I think they will still go keep going that way. But now here's my, my one caveat is I am certain that at least some of those justices on the right are aware of what has been happening politically. And, uh, you know, you think of the 22, uh, the 2022 elections where uh, many Democrats won who might not have won if the Dobbs decision wasn't in the air. You think of what's just happened in Wisconsin, the uh, state elections up there. I, you know, I think that some of those justices know that this is hurting uh, this is hurting Republicans. And even though they would like to have blinders on to the political scene, uh, do they really want to keep giving rulings that might change the political landscape? I mean, I'm just raising that because I think that's still, that's a reality, even though everybody hates the idea that politics would infect the court. Politics infects the court. And then the other thing is not just that. It's just the, the stature of the court in the, in the American eye. Think of how polls have shown such a decrease in public approval for the court. The chief says, oh, it's because they don't like our rulings. I don't think that 
is quite right. I think what they, I think what people are questioning is this neat political alignment that we now have. You know, the six justices who seem to be pushing the law further in the conservative direction were all Republican appointees. The three liberals who are complaining loudly about it were all Democratic appointees. And I think what what you know the American public keeps seeing is a court that's that's you know politically charged in its decisions and you know individual justices may quarrel with that assessment but i think that the the polls show that it, it's real well joan biskupic as you well know i could talk to you and listen to you for hours about the supreme court but we're going to have to leave it there joan thanks so much for joining us on cases and controversies thanks greg it's like we brought our audience into our little discussion that we have in the press room all right well that was a really great interview i'm so glad we were able to you know, pull Joan away uh, from the beat to be able to talk with us and Greg, for that matter, and you. I know it was I can't believe that we tried to get all three Supreme Court reporters into one space uh, today, but somehow we managed to pull it off, sort of. Yeah. Uh, You uh, can tune in every week to Cases and Controversies to find out uh, what's going on and follow along with all the latest news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Hello, podcast listeners. If you don't already know On the Merits, our weekly podcast devoted to legal and government news, it's a show that features the very best of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government, newsrooms that boast among the largest number of credentialed journalists in D.C. When you listen to On the Merits, you'll hear about the groundbreaking developments in the courts, in Congress, and in the alphabet soup of federal agencies that run Washington and our nation. Our show is by and about legal and government policy nerds, and we say that lovingly. It's a nerd's eye view of what professionals in the legal and government space need to know. But you do not have to be a nerd to listen. Check out our show on the merits and find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find our archive of shows at news.bloomberglaw.com slash podcasts.